the scripture is, let's see, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay payment, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should we be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one who must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Erica. You know, I had time to, uh, to reflect this last week. Uh, actually, a week ago today, I lost my grandmother, my, uh, my mom's mom. It made me think about my time growing up uh, at her house, how just two weeks a year, one week in the summer, one week in the winter usually, uh, I and, and all the other cousins would come. My mom has like six siblings. Uh, so we have a lot of cousins, and we would come, and it was out in a very small town in the middle of Kansas. And so there's plenty of space and not much uh, to get, uh, well, there's plenty to get in trouble with, but, you know, there's just not much out there. So it's left to our imaginations to just fill the summers with, uh, with fun and all kinds of good things. And one of my favorite things and memories about being there that I was able to reflect on this last week was, was how when I was there, uh, I, felt, I felt at home. I felt like I was on even ground. I felt like there was no hierarchy between me and my cousins. And I know that's not normal for every family. Uh, in fact, other parts of my extended family, it's not the same. But, but there, I felt like I belonged. I felt like I knew where I stood and that I belonged. And I think as we look at what is the good life, as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, as we're doing this summer, uh, we find that the, uh, one of the answers for that What is the good life? It's knowing where you stand with God. So we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. Knowing how to approach him. Knowing uh, what to do uh, when we come to to church. Uh, And uh, I think think this is fantastic that we look at this because the world, in contrast to, you know, my grandma's house, my grandparents' house, uh, the world is, is, it can be like walking in a minefield. We don't always feel like we belong. In fact, the world oftentimes, it can feel like the world's always demanding us to do a little bit more or uh, perform a little better or, or make a little more or whatever it may be so that we can keep up with belonging. Do you ever feel that, the constant pull to, to measure up? And so a lot of times we can hope that as we come to church, that we can have a respite from that, that it can, we can have a break from that. We want a part also of a sense of being a part of something bigger, a sense of uh, developing meaning for our lives. Uh, we want to know God better. We come to God's house for that. And however, we all may not be oblivious to the fact that church in America is, it looks differently. It has a huge spectrum of what church looks like and what church is like. Church can be 
something that is incredibly uh, like a, a wonderful experience. Maybe you grew up in church and you enjoyed it, and you're, you're here in church today, and, and you, you have great memories, and you're happy to be here. You feel plugged in. You feel involved. You feel like you belong. Maybe you've been burned by church, and the fact that you're here uh, is that you're giving it a second chance. Maybe it's been a while, but you're like, you know, maybe, just maybe, uh, it might not be entirely something to give up on. Or, or maybe uh, you're feeling stretched and burned in your faith, and you're, you're maybe giving Christianity in the church maybe one last chance. Whatever your story has been, we're so glad you're here. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, and as we study Ecclesiastes, uh, as we've been doing this summer, we found that, what have we found? That uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, we, he calls himself the teacher or the preacher, that he has explored everything in life there is to have and to do, anything that looks fun, anything that looks fulfilling, even things that look boring. He's tried it all to see what's going to make him happy, and he's found nothing under the sun really fulfills him. And as he embraces that fact, it actually makes him a little depressed, and that, but that's a process where then later he comes to realize that, well, the world was never meant to satisfy me, that, that my soul was designed to be satisfied only by my maker. And so he matures, he grows to realize that the world's never going to satisfy him, but God can. And that in turn allows him to live a more complete life, a more full life, a good life, if you will, knowing that the good things in life will never satisfy him, but his creator, who is good, will. And so how we think about church in respect to this is important. Now we're going to look in this passage, and we'll see the community of God being a hospital for sinners. We're going to look within this text at what appears to be a hunger for God, and then we're also going to see in this text a hope for the nations. A hospital for sinners, a hunger for God, and a hope for the nations. So first, a hospital for sinners. Uh, The teacher tells us to watch our step when we go in God's house, to watch our step because, well, one, because God is holy, And in general, in the Old Testament, all throughout the Scripture, there's this sense, even the New Testament, there are times where when you come face-to-face with God, you you realize the massive difference between His awesomeness and our awesomeness, and and those who encounter Him fall flat on their face often uh, because they, they just aren't, you know, there's nothing else they can do. There's a big difference. So watch our step because we don't just mess around with church, right? Mess around with God. Well, He tells us to guard our step also because there are fools there. There are fools in, in, in church, in the community. Uh, we see in the text, he says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Uh, so it's implied that there are fools. This is a place where uh, we aren't perfect. No one here is perfect. Uh, the church is described as a hospital for sinners, a place where everyone who, who will need healing comes to find healing. And so we approach it in that way. So watching our steps, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, there, there's, there are little instances of how people uh, just fell in awe of God. Isaiah fell down and, and was convinced he was going to die, right? Uh, the priests, the high priest, uh, who would go into the most holy place in the temple to offer a sacrifice once a year, when he went in, uh, he had to be very careful to do things a certain way because he was, as it were, in the very presence of God that normally was kept off from the rest of the world. They had to be so careful, and they tied a rope around his foot so that if he did something wrong, had a misstep, that 
and he died, <laughs> because that's how holy God is, that they could drag him out without having to go in themselves. Can you believe that? God was not to be messed with. And yet, God, as we will see later, is also incredibly loving and merciful. But we'll get there in a second. You know, if your faith is new, chances are reverence for God isn't really a problem for you. Uh, chances are, if your faith is fresh and new, you're like, yeah, of course God is amazing. Of course, of course I'm not. And that's a feeling that we, as we grow in our, in our walks with Jesus, we, we need to come back to and remember that he is God and we are not. Uh, as we draw near, the phrase to draw near to God, as I was saying, he's not just, not just holy, but he's also compassionate. He's also merciful. The phrase draw near is an intimate word. As you approach the house of God, as you draw near to listen, that's a sense that there's a word that, yes, he's holy, but yes, he also allows us to draw near as those who are part of his family, as those who belong by his mercy. And we're talking about the house of God. We're talking not just about his temple, but any house of God. Uh, In fact, the word ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means assembly, or it's the Greek word for church. And so this, is, this whole book is about the teacher speaking to the assembly, to the congregation, to the church. But uh, it's a hospital for sinners. But what, what does this mean? It's a hospital for sinners. Um, you know, so we should not be shocked to find ourselves among those that need healing. When uh, I go to the hospital, I visit anybody in the hospital. If I visit you in the hospital, I guarantee you that I have hit every hand sanitizer station between the front door and your room. Uh, It's not that I'm a germ freak. It's just that I'm a germ freak, and I keep track of everything that I touch, and I'm like, someone else has touched that, and I don't know who touched that, and I don't want to, like... I don't want to bring any illness to you if you're healing, and I don't want to take any illness home with me uh, as well. And so I'm very aware of what I touch. And it does not surprise me when I'm in a hospital that I'm around people who need healing. That doesn't shock me. However, sometimes it can shock us when we get bumped the wrong way in the body of Christ. When, uh, when we get uh, burned a little bit, sometimes, oh, I thought, we were, I thought this was a place for good people. Yes, we're all trying to follow Jesus. We're all trying to to live our lives the best we can and follow him, but we're all still in need of healing. And the teacher here, the author of Ecclesiastes, he isn't saying that that it's only in God's house that people need healing. No, 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 it's it's everybody. You know, so if if people have been burned by the church, um, if you've been burned by the church, uh, I bet you've also been burned by the world. Uh, and it's maybe, you know, it's, it can be reasonable to have expectations that maybe you wouldn't be burned in the church, but the reality is that we're all still in need of healing. Uh, and we, we see this in, our, in our, our culture, in the world around us. When someone with a criminal history, or no criminal history rather, does something bad, when, uh, when someone just you know, lately we've been uncovering a lot of things people have said that are racist or misogynistic, and, and, and it's been in the news a lot. Uh, sometimes people will scratch their head and say, you know, to, to know what happened, you know, was it, uh, how do we fix this? How does it not happen again? Well, we live in a, in a broken world, and, and we should not be shocked to find dysfunction in the world around us. And you know what? All of us are coming into the place here in God's house. And so we should watch our step, guard our step, because of the people around us. 
doesn't mean being cynical. It doesn't mean protecting ourselves, uh, like building walls around ourselves. It just means guarding our steps. But also, uh, by implication and by direct uh, command, the teacher says that we ought to not be shocked when we need healing ourselves too. And that can be even more shocking than realizing that people in the church aren't perfect. It can be even more shocking to be faced with the idea that, that I might not be perfect. And, and there have been you know, phases in my walk with Jesus that have, that have uh, you know, that have coordinated with phases in, in my marriage as well. And my wife has just been with me, uh, you know, for the last 16 or so years, 16 plus now. And, and she's like walked with me through those times and, and prayed for me. She's, if anything, the most consistent person who's prayed for me uh, during these last 16 years. And, and she'll, she'll tell you times where, uh, and a little bit of growth that I've made, in, in just doing things that on the outside make me look really good, but on the inside make her feel really bad. And as she began in our marriage to confront me with these things, to confront me with how alone she felt, to confront me with with how she really felt in our marriage, I thought at first, no, you're just crazy. That, that makes no sense. And then through prayer, God showed me that, yeah, I really was a part of, I really was doing these things. I, I was a part of this problem. I, it was shocking to me to realize that I also needed healing in ways that I didn't think I needed healing. And so what are some ways you need healing? You know, maybe you're thinking of some obvious things. Well, I want to be better with my finances. I want to be more disciplined in this area. I want to uh, spend more time in reading God's Word. You know, those things, yes, yeah, sure. But, but ask God to show you the, 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 maybe things that are harder to understand. And, and, and as you do that, you know, uh, he, he does, it's not, he's not rough. He's a loving Father. And he'll, he'll do that with, with tenderness and compassion. Uh, so we ought not to be shocked. You know, in... Uh, I have a friend who has used this illustration before that, that the church in so many ways, I think this is a great picture, uh, it's not just a hospital for sinners, but uh, it can be like porcupines living together. Uh, like porcupines huddled in a storm. Uh, porcupines just living together. Uh, you know, we're, porcupines seem all cute and cuddly. And isn't there like a trend now of having pet hedgehogs, I think? Porcupines and hedgehogs, I don't know if they're the same. They're probably not the same. But uh, they're both spiky. And they both probably hurt at some point if you hold them wrong, right? Uh, and I wonder, why would you want something that hurts you so bad? But uh, in hedgehogs, they're really, really cute, but they can't hurt you. Um, and we're kind of like hedgehogs or porcupines uh, here in the church. Like, we will hurt each other. We ought not to be shocked. That, that's all I want to say. Like, I don't want to dwell on it any longer. We just shouldn't be shocked. And there is good news here to follow. We shouldn't be shocked that they're around us. We shouldn't be shocked that we can hurt others. Um, and so we ought to then approach God like, while guarding our steps in the house. Not being naive to think that everything is great. Uh, not also not being cynical. He says, guard your steps when you go to the, God's house. He doesn't say, just don't go to God's house because... Pfft. No, he says, when you go to God's house, just guard your steps. We're in this together. And a part of growing in your relationship with Christ is being together. Spending time together. And so, yes, there are times where being hedgehogs or porcupines crowded together in a storm might be unpleasant, but it's overall sweeter than it is unpleasant. So be encouraged with that. So that's a hospital for sinners. Also, really important, you know, it's, we don't get to decide who gets to come in and who doesn't. Our job is to open the doors to the hospital. 
Our job is to say, anybody, come on in. And so if, however you feel this morning, if you feel like you probably shouldn't be here, if we really knew what your life was like, that you, of course, are welcome here. And if you knew what we know about what our lives are really like, then you'd feel a lot more welcome. <laughs> you'd feel like you belong. So our job is to open up the doors, not to push people away, uh, because everybody's in need of healing. And this is where we find it. So secondly, so first, the church is a hospital for sinners. Second, uh, we look here and see a hunger for God. Each of us are guided by hunger for something. We're all, we're all guided by our hunger. And uh, here it talks about the sacrifice of fools. And that's no exception because the fools that are making these sacrifices, the people that are vowing rash vows, uh, you know, over-promising, essentially, on what they could really deliver, uh, making, uh, making sacrifices that for some reason, and we'll unpack it here, are, are not good. They're sacrifices of fools. Well, they're all, we're all hungry for something. So what is the sacrifice of fools? It's offering God something, thinking that you are impressing him. Offering God something, thinking that by your sacrifice, you're going to make your relationship better with him, when in reality, you make it worse. My, one of my, okay, Megan and I talked about this this morning. We don't know if it's our first date or if it was our second date. We can't remember. But one morning, uh, actually a Saturday night, we went to a square dance. I know it sounds, it was perfectly normal back then. But uh, I don't know if you've ever been to one. But we went to a square dance, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, we hadn't, it was with a group of friends. And the next morning, uh, I picked her up uh, to get breakfast before we went to church. And we went to a great breakfast spot. And when we were there, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I want to treat her well. And she might be a little bashful about wanting to have me spend a lot of money. So I'm going to make sure she knows that she can get whatever she wants. And so when it came time to order drinks, she hesitated a little bit. I was like, no, we'll, have, we'll both have orange juice. It's fine. And uh, I was thinking she was going to not get orange juice because it's like $5 at these breakfast places. So, uh, but she, we both got orange juice. And I was thinking I was making a sacrifice that was noble, a sacrifice that was, that was going to impress her and make our relationship go off to a good start. Well, it turns out that for a while, she was really, like, just had a craving for apple juice. And, <laughs> and so when I said, no, 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 we'll both have orange juice. She was like, but I, I mean, she wasn't really picky, but at the same time, for whatever reason, she just had a craving for apple juice that morning. And, uh, and when I said, no, 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 we'll have orange juice, she was like, well, uh, she didn't feel like she could say anything anyway. So me trying to impress her totally backfired, and then she felt bad about saying something about it for a long time. Uh, and then I felt, and then I really felt like a fool when she finally told me, you know, so, um, so it, it, you know, my best intentions can sometimes backfire. And this, I think, is what the sacrifice of fools is. When we go to God thinking, hey, I'm really going to impress you, God, with what I can do and what I can bring. And God's like, I just want you. I just want to be with you. I just want to know your heart. Uh, I think we just sang it. If, if everything on earth and heaven were ours, that would be an offering a present far too small to give to God. That, that his love so amazing, so divine, it demands what? Our soul, our life, my all. God just wants us. My, Megan, who's now my wife, she just wanted to spend time with me. And the fact that I insisted on making this grand sacrifice just became a, a thing, you know? She just wanted to spend time with me. 
So we are, now why did I do that? Why did I do that? Because I was hungry to impress. I was hungry to look good. I was hungry to, uh, to win her over with how amazing I was. Our hunger can drive us. And oftentimes we can come to church as seeing this as a safe place, an easy target for people to admire us, for people to give us respect that maybe we don't feel every day at work or, uh, or, or in the home, uh, an easy target for people to admire us or whatever it may be. And that's not what church is designed to be. But our hunger drives us. And when our hunger drives us, it impacts those around us. Another story, uh, my family and I, at some point in the last few years, were driving from here to St. Louis to see family. And we left kind of early in the morning, and so it's like 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Uh, we have family in St. Louis. We weren't expecting them to wait up and prepare us a meal. Uh, we were just going to get there. So we had to stop for dinner somewhere along the way. And we're driving in Illinois at this point. We're pretty close, but we don't know how far because uh, I ran out of cell service. I didn't have a data signal. So I, GPS didn't work. I didn't know where anything was. Have you ever been in that situation? And we're driving along the road, and we think, finally, there's a McDonald's. Like, there's been nothing for miles, nothing for, for a couple hours. And then there's a McDonald's. Let's stop there. It's like 7.30 or 8. And, and it's kind of an inside joke in our family, but like when I'm hungry, it's like the world stops and, and we just have to get something to eat right away. Uh, I'm getting better, but still. So we thought, okay, fine, we'll go to McDonald's. And nothing wrong with McDonald's, but this one in particular was the worst one we had ever been to. And it's like on every burger, first of all, I ordered burgers and the kids didn't really want burgers and they put way too much ketchup on it. And they put like, it's like they dumped pepper on each burger or something. The kids hated it. And it was a miserable experience. And so we get back on the road, like, fine, whatever. Five minutes down the road is one of those exits with every restaurant possible. <laughs> and if only I was willing to be patient and wait, we could have had, I mean, anything that we wanted. But because my hunger was driving us, not only did we, I settle for something far less than I could have had, but our, my family suffered as a result. I mean, we stopped and fed them something better, but... Um, it was a lesson to be learned. You know, when, when we're hungry for all those things that, that really the church is not made to give us, that the assembly is not made to give us, that God's house is not really made to give us, that sense we are meant to feel like we belong, but, but not meant to be adored. Uh, we're meant to be, yeah, appreciated, but not uh, admired, uh, you know, lifted up high. It, it's not a game where we pat each other on the back uh, to lift each other up to, to boost our egos. We lift each other up when we're down, uh, not to boost our egos. And, and the church is not built for that, but our hunger, when it drives us, we'll end up settling for something far less than we're made for, uh, and we'll end up impacting those around us. Uh, so we're guarding our steps as well. You know, it, it's, it's not meant to be a game. It's not meant, church is not meant to be a place where or it's a game for us to get something back and see if we win the admiration of others and things like that. You know, Gordon Dahl, I've mentioned this quote two, summers, or two Sundays in a row now, uh, but he has this great quote that I've used um, where, where he says that, uh, that most middle-class Americans uh, tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. And as a result, their meanings and values are distorted their relationships disintegrate faster than, than they can keep them in repair, 
and their lifestyles resemble a cast of characters in search of a plot. Uh, and how, I mean, how true. Like, we're looking for a bigger story, a bigger plot. Uh, we're looking for a place of belonging. But the thing that gets me is that, as I alluded to before, he says that those who are doing this don't realize they're doing evil. Like, it doesn't seem bad to us at the time. It doesn't seem wrong. Uh, you look to Matthew chapter 6. You know, what is a fool? A fool is someone who, uh, who is rash with their mouth, who uh, makes sacrifices, uh, thinking they're doing good, but they're really staying far from God with their hearts. Uh, they, are, they have big dreams, uh, and those big dreams about what the community could be is making them super, super busy, and they're missing God in the middle of it. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Uh, also says, When you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet uh, so that you can be praised by others. Um, again, like my orange juice purchase there. Um, not that Megan was needy. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but uh, so truly, you've received your reward, it says. Uh, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues, at the street corners, that they can be seen by others. Um, the hard thing about all this is that we don't realize we are doing it. So I have a, uh, uh, I have, I have a, a fun activity that I'm going to do today. I'm going to try this out, see if this works. Um, I have a story that I'm going to tell first is that uh, a friend of mine, a friend of Megan and I, we have, uh, was at the beach and with his family. And as his kids were out playing in the water, uh, he saw a dolphin fin off in the distance. And he thought, oh, wow, a dolphin, that's so cool. Uh, and the kids were playing there, and, and they, sent, they said, hey, kids, look, it's a dolphin. Oh, that's great. Well, the, the dolphin fin got a little closer, and they thought, oh, wow, it's coming closer. And then as it got even closer, they realized that it wasn't moving like a dolphin normally does. And, and soon they realized, this is a shark. <laughs> and, so, and so quickly, hey, guys, come in. Come out of the water. There's a shark coming in. Now, is a fin in itself that frightening? No. It's what you know is under the water. It's the shark underneath the water that's frightening. And so often, you know, look, the hypocrites, for example, uh, Jesus called them out because they're saying, you just have this fin up, and you think that just by having the fin up that you're really okay. It's just this innocent little fin that you're projecting by, by your self-promotion. And, uh, but he's saying, I know what's underneath the surface. So, uh, so I have a, a coffee mug. It's one of my favorite things. And if you've been at our house uh, for a, new, for a uh, membership class, maybe you've seen this. But I love this mug because, if you can see, it's got people swimming in the water. And uh, if this works here, when you pour hot water into the mug... Uh, all of a sudden you see things in the water that weren't there before. Uh, as the mug warms up, and there's no way you're going to see all this, but as the mug warms up, you start to see that there are sharks all over, uh, <laughs> about to devour every single person in this, uh, in, you know, playing in the water there. Um, so what, is, what do we do with all this? Like one, I think this produces humility. This has to produce humility. This has to also lead us to seek self-awareness. And that's one thing that community is great for, is we can ask each other, you know, how, how do you experience me? Um, you know, those that you're really close with, you know, how do you experience me? If there's one thing, if you're really close, if there's one thing you could fix about me, what would you fix? And that's what the church is phenomenal for, to lead us towards self-awareness, to lead us towards all these things. Um, you know, in, in Luke chapter 10, there's a, there's a, a, a 
a lawyer, it says, who wanted to justify himself. Uh, and so he came to Jesus and, and, and asked, you know, what it really meant to obey God's law. And, and Jesus ended up telling him uh, the story of the, the Good Samaritan to kind of expose uh, what it really meant and expose that his heart wasn't really interested in showing mercy, but just looking good. Uh, then later we see in Luke 18, uh, this the Pharisee who stands and uh, in the temple worshiping, and there's someone with him. Uh, there's a tax collector, someone who's despised. And the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm so awesome. Uh, I thank you that, that I, I'm not like this other person here, that I, I, I tithe off of everything I make, and, and I, I fast twice a week. And the tax collector just says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I, as, we are, as we grow in the gospel, as we grow in these things, it ought to reveal uh, things we might not like, but ought to produce humility in us. And that kind of humility helps us interact with one another. And this is the kind of culture we want to create at King's Cross, a culture more of humility over impressing, more of, uh, you know, what comes out of that is hospitality and wanting to invite others. And you know what? People from the outside, people who don't know anything about Jesus, are going to be a little more comfortable in a community where we're not trying to impress each other, but where we feel like we are mess-ups, maybe like they do too. Uh, So this is, again, a hunger, not just to be justified, in the eyes of, of people, but a hunger for God, the only one who can actually deliver on these things for us. Um, self-awareness, uh, the, you know, this is like a difference between community, between using a community and building community. When we want community to affirm us and all these things, we become users of community. But when we realize that community can't give us what we really want, which is to really be affirmed, to really feel valued, to, to really feel justified. And we realize that, that the church, the people aren't going to give us that. Only God can give us that. Then we transform into being community builders instead of community users. And that goes far beyond this church. Like That's something that God does in the hearts of his people. And it spreads beyond what we're doing here. And that, that's our prayer for this county uh, and this part of the country as well. Uh, so how does this work? Where is this hope? Uh, there's first hospital for sinners, the hunger for God, hunger that can only be satisfied by God. And we see in this a true hope for the nations. This passage may not be obviously hope-filled, but as we unpack what it says here, that God is the one who should be feared, uh, we'll begin to see it. And we begin to see it also in what I said before, where, where God calls us to, one, draw near. Yes, guard our steps, because God is a consuming fire, (laughs) Uh, but also draw near as one who's invited to be a part of his family because he's also not just a a consuming fire, he's a compassionate father. He's he's both. He doesn't ask us to grovel before him to make things right with him. He has no ego that we have to puff up when we wrong him. Uh, He wants our hearts. He wants us. We don't have to impress him. And as we look at what it means to fear God, you know, it made me think in so many comparisons between this and a passage in Exodus. Um, you know, God led the Israelites out of Egypt, and uh, Moses went up on Mount Sinai, on this mountain, this big rock, where he could interact with God, where he heard from God. He got the Ten Commandments and the other laws straight from God. 
And while he's up there, the Israelites are building other gods. They build a golden calf and they worship it. They messed up huge. And at one point, one point God just says, I know what they're doing. I'm just going to kill them all, Moses, and make a great nation out of you. And Moses instead, in front of God, says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. But by your mercy, essentially, pardon them. Uh, by your mercy, forgive them. Make a great nation out of them because that will be a greater witness to the nations around us. And God listens to Moses. Can you believe it? God listens to Moses. And he says, okay, I will. He listens to Moses. And, um, and we see then Moses, I think just in this process, imagine what it was like for Moses there. He then, then says, God Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll show you your glory, my glory, but uh, I've got to do it in a certain way because if you see my face, you'll really die. You'll, you'll be able to see my back, essentially. And so I'm going I'm to put you on this rock. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by you. You'll see my glory, but not my face. I don't want you to die. And what's interesting is as Moses sees God pass before him, uh, he doesn't feel compelled to, to grovel, to, to blurt out whatever. He, didn't, he doesn't feel compelled to say anything. But actually, he stands there in silence. And as God passes by, he speaks to Moses. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin. He's saying, I am holy, yes, but I am also merciful and forgiving to all who come to me. I think the hard part of this, the hardest part for all of us, is receiving that mercy. It's receiving the grace that he gives. There's something inside of us that wants to earn every good thing that we have. There's something inside of us that wants to, to pay people back or pay it forward so that when we get something, we don't feel indebted. Uh, but God gives freely. He doesn't give that we might be indebted. He gives openly. In fact, that's the only way we can be forgiven. It can be very difficult to receive what God gives. And that, in so many ways, is what uh, the Christian life is about. It's reminding ourselves every day that the gift of forgiveness and mercy and grace from God is something that we just receive. That, that what the, the, the lawyer wanted, what sometimes we want when we try to make ourselves look good in the eyes of others, uh, that's something that God alone gives to us. I've said it before, but not only when Jesus died did he take our sins upon his shoulders and take our sins away, but in a process, in a big theological word that you don't have to memorize, don't worry about it, but it's called double imputation. Not only did he take our sins onto him and, and get rid of them, but he gives us his perfect righteousness, Jesus' perfect righteous record, the perfect life that we should be living is legally counted as ours through faith in Jesus. So that when we have that inkling, that desire to impress, uh, and we can say, no, no, what? If I, if I go down that road, I'm probably going to end up squashing somebody else along the way. When I have that desire to impress, remember, I can't be any more impressive to God than I am already. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Because when, when Jesus, remember when he was baptized, uh, I don't know if you've read this, but uh, God spoke at that moment and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And that is how God looks to you. 
if you have faith in Jesus. That's how he sees you. Yes, he sees our faults. He knows we're broken. He's working in us to change us. He's even working in us to renew our dreams. As it says, you know, with, with crazy dreams that we might have about grand ambitions, God rewires our dreams even. Helps us to reprioritize our life, which is what all of us really want anyway. He says, I love you. I'm proud of you. This is the one with whom I'm well pleased. You know, we have to, in order to do that, though, we have to receive it. We have to take it as a gift. There's, there's a story, um, a story of, of two brothers, and it might be an urban legend. I don't know if it ever really happened, but uh, the story of two brothers who were, who were playing on vacation. Uh, they found a creek uh, kind of in the mountains. It was kind of a ravine, and they were playing down there, and it started to rain. And as it started to rain, uh, they realized that the waters were, were growing pretty quickly, uh, but they realized also that where they were was hard to get out, and the walls were very slippery uh, of the ravine where they were, and they, they couldn't go up, and they had a difficult time going upstream, and uh, silt was beginning to fill where they were. And soon they realized that they had to get up quick or they were both going to die, both going to drown. And so they saw a branch above their head and they said, the older brother said, hey, let me lift you up and so you can reach the branch and climb out. And so the younger brother climbed up on top of his shoulders to reach the branch. Well, when the rescue team went and found them, they only found the younger brother. And he was far from the branch. He, he was, wasn't even close. They asked him as they pulled him out and he was waist deep in silt. They asked him, where's your other brother? And he says, I'm standing on his shoulders. His brother, I'm sorry, <clears throat> his brother knew, his brother knew that they'd never reached the branch. His brother knew, though, that if he held his brother up, that if his brother was standing on something firm, that he wouldn't be washed away. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He lifts us up. We stand on him. Just as Moses, standing on the rock of Mount Sinai, could see God's glory and be welcomed into his presence, in the same way as we stand on the shoulders only of Jesus and receive that gift, I mean, whether that's true or not, whether that story is true, it would have been hard for the younger brother to receive that gift, wouldn't it? He probably might feel guilty about it. Nevertheless, his brother did it out of love for him, and it's a free gift. The good news, though, is that Jesus did not just die for us. He also rose again. So that we know as we approach death that death no longer can hold us. And as we look at all these things, as we look at receiving this day after day, it really gives us a chance to be a hope for the nations, to be a place not just that is a hospital, but to be hospitable to the world around us, to offer to the world around us not us being better than any other people that you'll find on the face of the earth. We're not the best people you'll, you'll ever meet, but we have a Savior who loves us. We can invite people to come be real, to come uh, be themselves, to come heal with us, to be normal. And we see Jesus, who himself referred to himself as the temple, was torn down, rebuilt in three days. The house of God himself was willing to lower himself, uh, to be broken for our sake, that we can be built up in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you with awe. But we know that sometimes and often, Father, we, you know, we mess up and we don't even know that we're messing up. 
But Father, you're, so you're there to receive us with mercy, always. New mercies every day, your scripture says. Your grace is unconditional, it says. Father, I pray that you would continue to work, and I praise you to, to, to see what you've already done here at King's Cross, to see the things, the signs uh, of grace dominating relationships that you've, that you've done here. I pray that you continue to work that, and even more so, Father, may grace and mercy and humility be things that, uh, that, that characterize even more so our community. Father, we pray that this would be a hope. This would shine a light into those who don't know you. Father, be pleased to do these great things through us. That, Father, uh, by the blood of your Son, who on the cross said, forgive them, they know, what, they know not what they do. Father, I pray that by his blood and for his glory, he would forgive us, change us, grow us, and do these great things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.